Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Never Mind the Bar Charts with myself, Mark Pack. This time I'm joined by Professor Alan Renwick from the Constitution Unit at UCL. Obviously, to any Liberal Democrat like me, the idea of there being a unit just about the Constitution is particularly exciting. But I've asked Alan on because he and his colleagues have just published a report looking at public opinion to do with how our political system is working and possible reforms to improve it. So welcome to the show, Alan. Hi, Mark. Great to be here. I guess a good place to kick off is with that new report, and I'll include a link to it, the full report in the show notes for listeners. But what were the main findings from your latest report? Yeah, so this is a report that is presenting the results of a big survey that we did last summer. So being typical ac- academics, it's been a little while since we actually did the survey, but we've been analysing... The... You've published in the same decade. I mean, that's pretty sweet, <laughs> isn't it? What can anyone complain about? Absolutely. <laughs> so, yeah, big survey we did last summer looking at people's attitudes towards the to dem- democracy in general and the operation of the democratic system. And it's actually the third part of the study. That So we had a previous survey that we did in the summer of 2021. And then we ran a Citizens' Assembly, the Citizens' mm-hmm. Assembly on Democracy in the UK. And we've previously published the results of those two bits as well. And actually, the three parts all have produced roughly the same kinds of conclusions. And I would say there are three kind of big headline conclusions mm-hmm. that I would draw out. So the first is that people have low trust in how our politics is working at the moment, low trust in politicians, are very concerned about lack of integrity in politicians. Mm. So we asked, for example, a question about whether people think that politicians generally follow higher ethical standards than ordinary citizens or the same ethical standards or lower ethical standards. And 52% of people said they thought politicians follow lower ethical standards against just 5% who thought politicians follow higher ethical standards. So, you know, really strong sense of disaffection with politicians and their and their standards, and also a sense that the, the rules that we have and the system that we have for upholding those rules to protect integrity among politicians are not strong enough and, and need to be need to be strengthened further. So that was the first big headline. Then the second one is that most people would like to see stronger accountability um, and stronger checks and balances within the system. So I guess partly because they don't really trust politicians, they don't like the idea of power being concentrated in the hands of just a few politicians at the top of the system. So they're very sceptical about strong government and they'd like to see a stronger parliament. They'd like to see the courts continuing to play a significant role, for example, in protecting human rights. In the in the first survey, not in the second one, but in the first survey, we also asked about the impartial civil service, for example, and we found that there was very, very strong support for maintaining the impartiality of the civil service. So we could see kind of across the board a sense that people are sceptical about concentrated power and they want to ensure that there are various different voices involved, various different actors involved in making decisions. And then the third finding is that people do actually care about all of this stuff. So I guess previous studies have have maybe shown in some ways what sorts of attitudes people express when they're asked these kinds of questions about the operation of the democratic system. But the response has often been, yeah, people might say that when they're asked a survey question, but these aren't things that people actually care about in any, any meaningful way. So we wanted to get at, do people really care about these things? And I mean, they don't care about them as much as they care about the state of the economy and the cost of living and the NHS and things like that. But they definitely do care about them. So we asked, for example, about we, we, we presented people with various different issues and asked them to consider which of them mattered more to more to them. And we found that the health of democracy in the UK came out about the same. Again, this is last summer, about the same as crime and immigration and the sorts of issues that, you know, everyone assumes that voters care about a great deal. So I think this stuff does matter and therefore does deserve attention. Yeah. So taking each of those three in turn, I guess let's just sort of dig into into those a little bit. I mean, the point about the public not trusting politicians is in one sense a very uncontroversial finding because it's a very common finding across multiple surveys. But it's also a very common finding across the years. So 
is this really a case of things have got worse or is this a case of this is how people have always viewed politicians brackets except perhaps at moments of particular national crisis yeah you're right so it has always been the case that people have distrusted politicians and the longest surveys that we have looking at this are from Ipsos, who've mm. been asking the same questions on yep. this since the early 1980s. British Social Attitudes Survey has been, ask, been asking about this since the, the late 1980s. I mean, if you look at the Ipsos numbers, then the proportion of people who trust politicians to tell the truth is at the lowest it's ever been in, in 2022, their latest findings, but only just. And mm. basically, it's between, been between sort of 12% where mm. it currently is and about 20% mm. for most of the time since yeah. 1983. So it's not clear that there's really a general pattern of decline there. And similarly, with the British Social Attitudes Survey findings, we're certainly not much different from where we were 20 or 30 years yeah. ago. But I guess I would say three things in addition to that. The first thing I would say is... I, th I think the evidence is probably that these issues matter more to people than they did in the past. So again, looking at the Ipsos findings, of, of, of course, one, one constraint in our survey is we've done it twice, but, but it's only twice. So we don't have the kind of long time series that some of the other surveys do. So if you look at the Ipsos findings, then they too have been finding in the last couple of years that lack of faith in politics and politicians is a big issue for people in a way that it just wasn't in the past. And they have a, a question, they call it their issues index, where they ask people, what are the most important issues facing the country at the moment? And lack of faith in politicians and politics is up there among the top few issues at the moment and has been for a couple of years to the degree that just hasn't been the case in the past. Um, I guess second, I would also say, if you look at the long view, then... Um, the fact that people don't trust politics, I think, has more impact upon politics today than it did if you go back several decades. So if you go back to the 1950s, for example, we don't have so much polling evidence, but we have the, the, the fantastic mass observation study, which I'm sure you know all about, Mark, where people kept diaries. They were asked to write about their feelings on issues that were affecting the country at the time. And if you, if you read those mass observation studies, then you find even back then people are spitting fire about politicians and they think that politicians are just all on the make and all corrupt and so on, even back in the 1950s. But that just didn't affect how politics worked day by day because public opinion and the public were just absent from day-to-day -day politics. If you read Hansard from the time, public opinion just isn't there. So whereas today, you know, public opinion is much, much more present. And now we have the social media, meaning that the, the discourse of politics has changed a great deal. And the fact that people have less faith in politics, I think, is, is, is just much more significant for how politics actually works day by day in a way that is quite detrimental. That's and then thirdly, I guess I just, was just Sorry, say, just before you come on to the yeah. third point, I think there's an interesting irony, perhaps, therefore, in your second point, which is that... One of the respects in which how politicians do their job has changed is this culture now across, particularly the Liberal Democrats, but actually that's spread to other parties as well, this idea of campaigning all year round, that mm. being an MP isn't something that you do in Parliament for 90% of the parliamentary cycle, and then you visit your constituency for a few weekends in the run-up to the election, which, you know, is is the culture in the past. And also, you know, I remember reading a, a fairly recent autobiography of an Australian former party leader, and that was, you know, he had a marginal seat, and therefore he went for a few weekends before polling day. That was what having a marginal seat meant, which I think many British politicians would only look on with a sense of envy at it only requiring that. But I guess what that means is that the, the politicians are much more, even pre-social media, politicians have become much more tuned into meeting the public, hearing the public's views sort of day in, day out, week in, week out, rather than the public being the jury that pops into their their minds, as it were, once every few years. So perhaps in, in that sense, being more in touch with the public is it is a slightly double-edged sword, if it, if it means, therefore, you're also more aware of what the public thinks of you. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, in many ways, it's a very good thing. 
And it's mm. obviously important in a democracy that the voters are actually shaping what happens more than just once mm -hmm. every few years. But it does mean that what voters think of the system matters in a way that perhaps it didn't 30, 40, 50 years ago. Yeah. And then just the third mm. point that I was going to make is even if it didn't matter more, even if trust wasn't a bigger issue now than it was in the past, that obviously doesn't mean that it doesn't matter. And I guess it would be particularly odd for Lib Dems to suggest that because things are not worse than they were 30 or 40 years ago, that means that they're fine, because obviously Lib Dems and, and predecessors 30 and 40 years ago were very unhappy with how politics was working then. So, yeah, I think I think I, I, th I think it does matter more than in the past. But even if it didn't, it would still matter. I mean, I, I guess I'm in part struck by the comparison with that Ipsos trust data of the finding for journalists. So journalists, you know, consistently in the long run have come out really badly as being not trusted. And when you break, when there are other, there's other sources of data that break it down a bit between types of journalists, certainly you say the BBC comes out a bit better than the Daily Mail. But fundamentally, journalism as a profession has a very long running trust problem. But, and journalism has had lots of struggles, <laughs> lots of challenges over the last few decades, but most of them have not been related to trust. And in many ways, you could say, you know, journalism as a profession seems to put remarkably little effort into trying to make itself a more trusted profession. You know, there was a little burst a decade or two ago with things like the introduction of readers, ed uh, editors to newspapers and introducing corrections, columns and so on. But it's a pretty sort of thin, modest set of steps that journalism has taken. And the big challenges you know, in terms of the collapse of business models for local newspapers and so on, all of those you know, those sorts of business model problems don't seem to be really driven by trust. And in a way, there is something, I think, fundamentally different about our political systems, because they are there to serve the people in a more fundamental way. Obviously, journalists would say in a way they're there to serve the public. But, you know, they also, you know, even if they're working for the BBC, the BBC still has, you know, a bottom line that it needs to meet. It still has, you know, if your viewer figures are up, you might consider that that's success, even if lots of people are not watching you, etc. I think there is something a little bit different about the ethos. Of, but I, I do wonder whether, you know, we sort of therefore slightly overdo the importance of lack of trust in understanding the challenges the political system faces, just as most of those problems journalism has faced in previous decades. One could argue maybe it's changing now with all of the fake news concerns, you know, hasn't been about trust. Is it really trust? Or is it that people are unhappy with how the country is going, how their incomes are going up or down, how long the waiting list is, et cetera. And that, that that might in part be playing out with therefore saying, well, therefore, I don't really trust these politicians. But the problem is their wages, the waiting queue, not something to do with how often do you hear from the politician or how often do they make apologies if they get things wrong, et cetera. Yeah, I mean, if you look at polling data on trust over time, then... I mean, it doesn't actually relate particularly closely to the state of the economy. You see, I mean, with if, if you're looking at the the Ipsos data, for example, uh, you can see that there's a big increase in trust that happens following the 1997 general election. So pretty clearly, there had just been a period when trust in politicians had been declining, trust in government had been declining, and there was a sense that it was time to have something new. Something new was got and trust rose. And then you see a big fall in trust around about 2009, which I think is more likely to be related to the MPs expenses scandal than it is to the, the whole banking crisis and the economic problems that were happening at that time. And if you look at the period since then, then trust kind of bounces around quite a lot, not in response, I don't think, to anything that's happening in the economy, but rather to what is happening in the world of politics. And I think when people are answering questions about trust, there's always the question, I mean, with, with all of these questions, we need to think carefully about what question do people actually imagine, imagine themselves to be answering? And what do they mean by trust in the first place? Um, but I think all of these questions of trust are getting at some kind of sense of whether people that people feel that politicians are 
broadly standing up for the general public or are pursuing their own interests. And I think for democracy, it's very important that people do have a sense that their representatives are working for them, working for the broader public. And, you know, you can see that 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 sometimes in, in periods of, of economic trouble, people nevertheless think mm. that politicians are trying to do a decent job and they respect that. So I, I think there, 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 there is probably some connection. I mean, you, you know, you can see in the international data that mm. trust generally is higher in more equal societies mm. and richer societies. Mm. So, you know, there are connections there. And I think it's also the case that people are looking at what politicians are doing in response to the challenges that mm. the country faces and are making some kind of judgment on whether they think politicians are making a different, d decent feast, fist of trying to respond to those challenges. And then the 1997 point is an interesting one because I think, uh, I, I suspect if you had polled me in sort of early 1997 and then in late 1997, you know, either side of the general election, you know, you would have found that my trust in politics, the political system probably would have gone up. And as you say, you know, definitely there is wider data that substantiates that point. But I wonder, and that's why it went up, because, I mean, it is true that Tony Blair came to power with a series of promised you know, political reforms. But did, was the public really reacting to, oh, brilliant, we really like the fact that there's now going to be freedom of information legislation and therefore we can trust what's being done? Or was it actually that trust in this sense is almost a synonym for what do you think of the the prime minister or the leading, you know, the leading politicians in government? And oh. and therefore, in a way, the the solution to in, or, or the route to increasing trust in the future is much more about the individuals than the structures and the processes. And the latter might help. But in a sense, if you want to improve trust in politicians, you need to work on some coaching for the next the the person who's going to be the next prime minister, as opposed to having a bundle of legislative ideas to change how the system works. So, so what what do you think was the actual trigger in ninety seven? Yeah, well, I think I think you're absolutely right. People are answering questions about trust in politicians by looking at the politicians who are most prominent, and they're considering whether they have trust in in those individuals. And I think you're also absolutely right that people on the whole are not looking at the institutions. Indeed, you know, people don't know the detail of the institutions. And um, one, one of the interesting things of doing a project that has combined surveys with a citizens' assembly is that we've been constantly reminded of the importance of thinking about what do people understand when they read the kinds of questions that we put into surveys? You know, it's very tempting mm -hmm. as a survey person to imagine that you understand the question you're asking and therefore everyone understand, everyone else understands the question in the same way and, and therefore you can quickly read across to the results. Whereas doing the Citizens' Assembly, it just makes us very conscious that most people you know, don't engage with politics and particularly with political institutions mm. in any kind of depth and don't know what the institutions are. Mm. So tinkering with the institutions in itself is not going to make any mm. difference. But if changing the institutions leads to better behaviour and leads to something that people notice that is less bad than the things they would otherwise have noticed, then that will lead to improvement. So if we think, for example about how the system has responded to allegations that Boris Johnson mm. misled Parliament, an issue that is very much in the news at the mm. moment, of course. Um, when we were doing our Citizens' Assembly, most of the members of the Assembly were just furious with the fact that Parliament was not responding with any speed mm. to what seemed to be obvious lying. Uh, for, from most members of the assembly, not all, of course, but most members of the assembly thought there was obvious lying going on from the person at the top of government. And they were just furious that the system wasn't reacting to that with the speed that they thought was appropriate. So, whereas if you had institutions in place that allowed MPs who have concerns about things that have been said in parliament yeah. to raise those concerns and to trigger some kind of process 
And it doesn't take months and months and months of eventually Parliament deciding that maybe it's going to hold an investigation then, that then itself also takes months and months and months. Then people wouldn't be seeing this, the system appearing to fail. Uh, they would rather be seeing the system responding mm. and therefore you know, trust would not be harmed to the degree that trust has been harmed. Because I mean, one of the very interesting things that we see between our 2021 survey and our 2022 survey, so 2021 is before the Owen Patterson affair, before Partygate, before all of these scandals. Whereas 2022, the survey was done while Boris Johnson was actually still prime minister, but after he had announced his resignation. And we see during that period, a big decline in trust in the prime minister, which maybe isn't surprising, we see an equally big decline in trust in, the, in Parliament. So there's a real sense there that people are clearly just thinking that Parliament isn't doing anything decent here, isn't responding to the challenge. Where, and if it did, then, you know, hopefully people's sense of trust, but also more broadly their sense of whether Parliament is doing a decent job and, and, and representing the interests of the public would be enhanced a bit. Which suggests that that perhaps Prime Minister's question time is a significant factor in that that's the part of Parliament that probably gets the most media coverage. I think I think I'm fa on fairly safe ground guessing that. Mm -hmm. And certainly, when there is a big crisis, clips of what is said and what is shouted, one should perhaps add as well in terms of the level of noise and so on at pmqs is a standard part of media reporting and so on so how you see the government reacting to allegations is often in in large part for the wider public parlayed through what happens at pmqs and i can't imagine the theatrics of pmqs are particularly for raising trust levels although there are occasions definitely where i think a prime minister does say respond to a question in a way that gives you confidence i remember many years ago there was a scandal involving some horrific failures of a children's service in a local council and a Lib Dem MP at the time asked a question at PMQs. And actually, I think the, the low key way in which the question was asked and the low key way in which the question was answered, I think certainly gave me and I suspect quite a lot of other people sort of more confidence than you had before the exchange that, yes, this is something that you know, government will will take seriously about the need to investigate. Maybe also easier on that topic, because in a way, there is relatively little sort of party politics about such a topic. There's a bit because, you know, the, the party of the prime minister was also the party that had been running the local council. And there's obviously slightly different attitudes towards you know, funding of councils and so on. But fundamentally, Know, politicians across across the board want children's services to be run well. So maybe it was an easy round, but I was but but that sort of exchange in in PMQs around a really high profile, you know, sort of scandal or, or matter of potential government failure or the state's failure in this case, and not the central government. That that's pretty much the exception. And and so I don't know. Maybe we should abolish PMQs. Perhaps that's the best way of raising trust in. Well, it was a really interesting question. I mean, I, I think you're characterization of PMQs and how people respond to it is very accurate. Of course, the reason the news media pick up on PMQs mm. is that it, it it's, mm. it's, it's interesting. So, you know, we, one of the slight paradoxes in the survey findings is that people want politics to be more kind of deliberative mm. and more rational and less shouty. They, they really want a change in the discourse of politics. But you know, quite a lot of politics is more deliberative and more uh, and, and less shouty. But when it actually happens, it tends to be assumed that, well, that's just boring mm. and no one particularly wants to see it. So, you know, if you did abolish PMQs, would you just have less coverage of Parliament, which might actually mm. be worse than Indeed, having yeah, at least a bit that. of coverage of Parliament mm. because people do need to see their MPs acting and, and, mm. and doing stuff? Or would you get more of a shift and other aspects of Parliament's work covered rather more? And perhaps over time, if people saw Parliament acting more, then they would come to understand a bit more the sorts of processes that Parliament is normally engaged in, and it would be less boring over time. And, you know, those of us who watch Parliament a fair bit find it quite interesting because we understand mm. what's going on and, and mm. we can kind of relate to it. For most people, that's quite difficult to re relate to because they're just seeing little snippets now and then. 
potentially if you helped people engage with that a bit more then it it would improve things and it would improve perceptions or or potentially it, it would just still be perceived as boring you know it's one of the things where we don't we don't really know what would happen but it seems kind of worth trying something at least yeah. and and i guess part of the problem here is that making a sort of considered sort of uh, analysis of an issue interesting you know, in a way that doesn't bore people is a is a real talent and you know i'm i'm sure amongst this podcast listeners there are many people who listen to either say the political party podcast by matt ford or maybe more or less by tim harford and, and co both in their own very different ways take subjects uh, that are relevant to the news headlines and deal with them in very extensive depth So Matt Ford with very long hour plus interviews with leading politicians, more or less with dissecting the numbers behind the stories, but they do it in a way that makes them interesting. However, the skills that make Matt Ford, say, or Tim Harford so good at what they do are skills that would be really useful in an MP, but not skills that are necessarily that helpful for getting elected to Parliament, you know, in the first place. They're probably skills that actually work quite well for selection campaigns. Now, I can imagine, you know, imagine going to a political party hustings to select a parliamentary candidate and have something, someone with either of their communication skills, as it were. You know, they, they probably could work quite well. For, but in terms of you know getting elected to parliament, they're not the sort of skills that help so much directly for vote winning. So perhaps part of the problem, yeah, and you would expect me as a Lib Dem to say this, of course, you know, but comes back to the electoral system and what sort of skills the electoral system, particularly one first past the post with a large number of safe seats and so on, what sort of skills that tends to incentivize? Yeah, and we did have some questions in the survey about yeah. voting systems. And, you know, interestingly, support for proportional voting systems seems to be higher at the moment than probably it's ever been before, actually. Mm-hmm. And, we and the British Social high- Attitude Survey found yeah. that recently yeah. as well didn't it that it was sort of record I, I say record high although in in the bsa's case record high means since the early 1980s where that data series sort of started which depending on the on your age may seem quite recent or a long time ago yeah there, there may have been higher support for pr at some points in the early 20th century but yeah. certainly in recent times i think we can be fairly confident yeah. that it's at the highest level and, and our findings kind of matched those figures i mean i, I guess i think it's th- that that's the sort of issue where People are seeing electoral reform as potentially something appealing for overcoming some of the things that they're unhappy about in politics at the moment. But it could easily be that that support for PR is akin to the support for the alternative vote that we saw in opinion polls in sort of the second half of 2010 before campaigning got going for the referendum in 2011. And Uh, you're giving me horrible flashbacks, Alan. Move on, please. Well, absolutely. But we did. We asked one question in the first survey. We didn't mm. do this in the second survey, but in the first survey, we asked a question about what people thought were the most important features of democracy. Mm. And the thing that came top by a long way was that if those in power are doing a bad job, you can throw them out. And of course, voters in the UK are used to a system when what that means is you have a single party government and you can replace it with a different single party government. And I think it could easily be the case that voters, you know, if there were a referendum on the voting system, could be um, persuaded by that argument again. And indeed, it could be the case that if PR were introduced, then those kinds of accountability concerns might well come up and and be of concern to voters under a PR system. So there are plausible arguments for saying that PR would help with the sorts of things that we're talking about. Mm. There are also plausible arguments for saying that given the kind of democracy that people in the UK are used to, it might not help. Mm. Whereas I think things like, uh, I mean, one of the things that the members of our Citizens Assembly were most exercised by was the need for better education mm. about politics in schools, mm. but also in, in kind of general society in order to help people engage. So they had just a very, very strong sense that it ought to be easier for people to engage with politics than it is and that if it were a bit easier then people would be able to follow the debates in a more serious way which would then force politicians to campaign in a different way i mean you know these shifts are are, are gradual ones and you need to kind of 
gently nudge in this direction rather than imagining there's going to be some huge change. Yeah. But I think that's the kind of mechanism that you can clearly see might work if you can get it going. Whereas something like voting reform actually introduces mechanisms that some of them might be good, but some of them might be bad. And it would be important to be careful. Yeah. And and I think for me, actually, one of the things that tips it, the balance and to the positive side on electoral reform is the, you know, the very simple, but potentially very powerful impact of having fewer safe seats. And yeah. therefore, although it may it may not incentivize more of the sort of Matt Ford or Tim Harford in their own different ways, communication skills, there is something nonetheless about engaging with and listening to the public that I think would be beneficial about that. But I guess in a way, what I'm dancing around a little bit with some of these questions is on a massively smaller you know, scale than how the country is run, but my own experience of trust issues when I took up the post as president of the Liberal Democrats. So I took up the post on January the 1st, 2020. The party was not in a happy state. Lots of frustration and anger and lack of trust about how the party was being run. And I would just sort of reflect on the last three years. I think on all of those sort of criteria, things have improved massively. But I think that the immediate things that were directly aimed at trust, as it were, around, you know, communicating more frequently, a new schedule of sort of meetings with different stakeholders across the party, a new schedule of more public reports about what I and the federal board was up to, etc. I think all of those things were worthwhile, you know, and are still doing and so on. But fundamentally, if there was some trust, you know, trustometer, and yeah, I'm sure it would have gone up in the last three years, I think fundamentally, the cause of that would not have been any of the things that I and others did to directly tackle trust, but rather the slightly slower, longer term impact of actually getting some of the fundamentals right, and therefore getting the party better run. And that, in a way, people trust how the parties run more because of, say, the three parliamentary by-elections we've won than because of the actual trust-focused reforms. And, and, and that's what, what, what I wonder whether with, you know, on the much bigger and more important sort of scale of our national politics, whether actually that's, it's a similar thing. And therefore in part in 1997, you know, for example, the reaction wasn't to hooray, we've got Tony Blair and we're going to get freedom of information legislation. So we can now find out what the buggers are up to. So that gives me trust, but it was more, hooray, we've now got a government that is treating public services well or introducing a new minimum wage and therefore it's doing the right thing. And there, and by implication, therefore, I, I I trust things more. But with the sort of focus groups and so on that you've delved into for your research, has that given you a sort of sense of what the balance is in that, you know, or what politicians should be thinking about the balance for their future plans between the actual deliberately directly trust focused work versus the more general if people feel things are going well trust will come along yeah this is really interesting actually because in essence i agree with you mm -hmm. even though our evidence tends to point the other way <laughs> so <laughs> that's an unexpected answer <laughs> the so yeah quite so the surveys we asked in both surveys various questions where we ask people they're faced with it. Imagine that a prime minister is faced with a choice between, mm. for example, acting honestly mm. or acting in the interests of the country mm. or upholding the law and acting in, in the interests of the country. And we asked lots of different variants of this question. And for most variants, people say the prime minister should choose the integrity option. They should choose the acting honestly mm. and the acting within the law and, and the various other variants that we had there, which we found quite surprising. Mm. I mean, I think it, in in part it is meaningful mm. and people it, it's an indication an indicator that people really do care about these things. But I think probably also it does say a little bit about what people want to be true of themselves mm. rather than necessarily what is true of themselves. And I think it probably is the case that in reality, people care about the honesty and integrity, but, and you know, I, I think you can see this from how people vote in elections and so on, the, the core issues in terms of outcomes and the policies that politicians deliver clearly matter to a great extent as well, and possibly even matter mm. to a, a greater extent. I, I'm, I'm a bit, I guess what I'm saying is I'm, I'm a bit cautious of interpreting the evidence that we've got here 
because I suspect people are are saying something about what they want to be true of themselves, not just what is true of themselves. And did you test any specific examples? So I have in mind, particularly, I guess, secret government talks with the IRA. So before the Good Friday Agreement, you know, over well a period of probably three decades or so, there were at various times secret talks between the government and the IRA, and therefore also at various times government ministers or even the Prime Minister, certainly avoided telling the truth and in some cases didn't tell the truth because, you know, the, they were keeping the talk secret. Now, to my mind, that's the sort of deceit that is maybe one would say regrettably necessary, that if you're trying to save lives by secretly negotiating with, with the IRA, I can see why the negotiations might need to be in secret and therefore I can see why you might dodge you know, and not give a, a fulsome question, you know, answer to a question if if asked. That's partly why I think one should be wary about asking questions where you know there might be a good reason why somebody might not give you a true answer, because then, you know, you're setting yourself up for disappointment in a way there. And there are definitely, you know, degrees to which one could go overboard with being deceitful in such a response, and and therefore one might still hold it against the politician. But 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 certainly I think my, my memory of 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 those you know the latter part of that period was that when say in the ma the major government was not telling the truth about talks to the ira but when it all came out nobody really minded because it came out in the context of well those talks ended up being the quite successful prequel to then you know the, the peace deal that was then signed with when tony blair was prime minister and so you look back at that and you think well yeah they worked and so, yeah, did you actually test any examples like that? Because I wonder if it, if, if it needs a specific example that gets people mm. past, you know, the very admirable and, you know, very desirable strong instinct of, well, surely you should, you know, behave in a decent and honourable way all the time. Yeah, so we didn't get quite that specific mm. in the survey, but what we did find was we, we had one, one of the variants had asked about to protect the security of the country. Oh, right. And that was the one variant that did score higher mm. than things like honesty and acting within the law. And so, so yes, I, I think you're right. And indeed, within the Citizens' Assembly, I, I remember people did come up with exactly the kind of example mm. that you've just come up with. Oh, interesting. When, when they were discussing among themselves and they did feel that there are circumstances in which it is necessary for politicians to be at the very least economical with the truth. And so just coming on to then one other aspect of what you said at the beginning to sort of set up this conversation, this point about scepticism of concentrated power. Mm. Again, to Lib Dem ears, this is yeah, wonderful and correct and therefore obviously a highly robust finding. I do wonder, though, quite what it means in that you know, one way of characterising the public's involvement in the political process is that the more centralised the power, the more engaged the public is. So the public, what, yeah, to an extent, watches PMQs and doesn't watch the live streaming of the local council meeting. Turnout in Westminster general elections is higher than turnout in devolved elections generally, obviously one or two exceptions to that. And that in turn is higher than turnout at local elections. Yeah, the, the, basically the more concentrated the power is, the more the public engages, which at first glance runs counter to the you know, desire to not have concentrated power. So did you did you get any insight as to how those, the public views and the public behaviour sort of can be reconciled? Mm. So first of all, I can confirm that these these ideas do indeed warm the cockles of Lib Dem hearts because Lib, Lib Dems among our respondents were the most likely <laughs> to say that Parliament should be strengthened yeah. and the judges should be strong and, and various other things like that, perhaps as you would expect. So Yes. So I guess with the survey, again, it's important to remember that when people are asking a question about the power that Parliament should have versus the power that government mm. should have, most people don't know what power Parliament currently has and government currently has. And what they're offering is a kind of intuitive response as to how they think the democratic system ought to operate. And they're saying, essentially, they think that Parliament ought to be a very significant actor. And from the Citizens' Assembly, we can see that that is because 
they are thinking that it's important to have a range of different perspectives involved in decision making, that decision making shouldn't be just for the victors, that others should be taking part as well, and that scrutiny and deliberation are good things. And, you know, we can see that very, very clearly. But clearly, when they're answering a question like that, people are not are not kind of working through, OK, but how, how would I react if there were a situation where the government was proposing something and Parliament was was stopping it from taking place. I mean, maybe if we had asked the survey a couple of years earlier during the the Brexit impasse, when there was a lot of debate about exactly that question, then we might have got slightly different responses. But when people are answering in 2021, 2022, they've already forgotten all of that, most people. And, and they're simply offering an intuition as to how should democracy work. So, I, I, you know, I think you're maybe pointing at the question of does do, do people's answers as to how they think democracy should work offer answers to the question of what would make people like our democracy more what reforms would make our make our people like our democracy more and i don't think we can straightforwardly do a translation there so you know i don't think we can conclu- can conclude that because people say they would prefer a stronger parliament if we had a stronger parliament, people would prefer, would, would like the democracy more. What we have to think about rather is, well, what are the features that people like in democracy? And would having a stronger parliament strengthen those features or weaken those features? And I, I, I think there's probably a bit of a balance there. You know, I, I think and most most constitutional theorists would, would agree, not all, but most, that having a stronger parliament in the UK would probably be quite a good thing, because at the moment we have a relatively weak parliament, at least in some ways. But it's not not entirely clear that that's what the public would think if we did, in fact, have a stronger parliament, and for exactly the kinds of reasons that you were suggesting. Yeah, and I wonder if part of it also is that a lot of people don't really... You have to know quite a lot about politics to be able to distinguish between having a strong executive and having a strong legislature. And I, I suspect a fair number of people when, if you say strong parliament, peer in in effect strong government and, and are not distinguishing between the two. But I, I guess you will have dug into that a bit with your research. Am I being a little bit too sort of cynical there? Well, so one of the one of one of the one of the virtues I would say about the, the, the survey that we've done mm. <laughs> compared with quite a lot of the surveys is that whereas a lot of surveys just kind of put a proposition to people and ask them whether they agree or disagree mm. with it, we tended to offer people a choice of two propositions and ask them to choose between those propositions. So on this one, we asked them to choose between a government should be strengthened so that ministers can get things done more easily versus parliament should be strengthened so that ministers' proposals are scrutinised more carefully. Ah, right. Um, so that definitely gets at the distinction, even, even if people don't quite get the difference of government and parliament in the two in the two options. The point about speed versus scrutiny definitely would come through. That's interesting. Yeah, and 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 on on that framing of the question, forty seven percent said parliament should be strengthened, thirteen percent said government should be strengthened, and that you know there's support for parliament particularly among labor and lib dem voters labor and lib dem voters are almost the same as each other on this but even among conservative voters more said that parliament should be strengthened yeah. versus said that government yeah. should, should be and strengthened. I, do you think that was particularly influenced by when you were doing the research and the experience of the covid and lockdowns because i guess i mean there's an awful lot one can say about the decisions the government made and the process and structure of government behind it and so on but I think even the most critical people uh, who think the government got it really badly wrong in what it did, either because they were, you know, they locked down too much or because they didn't lock down enough. None of those criticisms are about, well, the government you know, couldn't act quickly. It was, you know, either you think the government did too much too soon or you think the government acts acted too slowly for, say, lockdown, but it acted too slowly for sort of political and ideological reasons, and that, you know, you would still acknowledge that things like the furlough scheme were rolled out remarkably quickly. And so it didn't, you know, it, it didn't seem like the problem was that the mecha- mechanisms of government were not able to, to react. If you think how quickly 
the vaccination program happened, how quickly, although thankfully most of them weren't needed, the Nightingale hospital beds were created, etc. You know, the, the the backdrop of the last couple few years is 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 much more about was the decision the right decision rather than could the decision be made quickly enough. Yeah, I'm thinking back to the Citizens' Assembly now and trying to think whether that offers any insights on this. And people certainly often referred to mm. the response to COVID, but I think they did have that kind of mixture of mm. perceptions mm. of what we should think about that case that yeah. you've just illustrated there. They did have a sense that that was clearly a case when government had to move mm. quickly, but they also had a sense that sometimes moving quickly created problems. Mm. And you know, in, within the context of a citizens' assembly, you get people engaging very thoughtfully and insightfully with these kinds of trade-offs, and they're very aware of the fact that there are these difficult trade-offs yeah. to be done. So that may have been in the background of the response to the survey question, but I suspect it wasn't a huge factor. Yeah, I, I, I think people are more just reflecting that they they want parliamentary they want decision making processes to be carefully thought through and reasonably inclusive and you know ac across a range of questions we we keep on seeing that as a response that comes out very very strongly yeah so just beginning to wrap up then i think with maybe two final questions one is sort of what's next for your research and then the, the final one will be now, what would your advice be to the next prime minister as to what to do on trust? But let's let's go for the easy <laughs> of the two. So, what's next for your research? Yeah, well, uh, a political scientist with a bunch of data is is someone is, is, is in clover. So we will be. We've done three reports from this project already. We've done a report on the first survey, a report on the citizens' assembly, report on the second mm. survey. All of those are available on our website. We've still got one more report to do, which will basically bring the strands together and reflect on the overall conclusions. So this conversation is actually very helpful for me. I'm having lots of conversations at the moment with people getting a sense of what, what other people think are the interesting strands in what we've found. And I'm kind of feeding that into our process of, of doing a final report. Then we'll be doing lots more to dig into some of the details of these issues around just what's the nature of people's preferences around political institutions? To what degree do people really have preferences? We'll be digging into some of the aspects that we haven't talked about so much today. So people are very supportive of the role of judges, for example, in, in mm. upholding human rights. Um, which is also obviously very relevant for some con contemporary policy debates, but is also quite interesting for political scientists and, you know, um, contrasts with what many people have assumed about public opinion. If you look at the media, then perhaps you would naturally assume that, that people have a more sceptical view of judges, but actually they're, they're very supportive of, of the role of judges. So looking into some of these particular institutional questions, the perceptions of judges, just towards citizens' assemblies as well. I mean, I've, I've been working quite a lot in the last few years on citizens' assemblies and thinking about whether they might be able mm -hmm. to help to restore trust, not directly, but maybe indirectly in, in just kind of, again, nudging the political discourse towards a state that would fit more with what mm. the kind of politics that people yeah. want to see so you know we'll be digging a bit further into that too yeah i i think the question of judges is absolutely fascinating because mm. for most people they don't see the work of judges sort of up close in person thankfully and you know therefore what they hear and see about judges are essentially the occasional controversy that hits the media and the stereotypical image in TV and film. And so, in I mean, I think the high level of trust in British judges is justified, but also quite surprising, because if basically the only thing you know about the profession are fictionalised versions or when there's a huge controversy over whether a judge got something wrong, but then still have so much trust in the profession is, is surprising. So I will be particularly looking out with interest to see what you can what you can learn what we can all learn from 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 the the reputation of judges but final question then imagine you're talking to the next prime minister whenever that may be and they're saying i'm really worried about trust in politics i know you and your colleagues have done all of this fascinating research what should i do well the first thing to say is this stuff does matter mm. 
So do not listen to all of your colleagues who say, yeah, but really people don't actually care about this stuff when it comes to it. People do care about it. It maybe doesn't influence people's votes all that much because there are probably bigger issues that mm. do shape people's votes. The current state of public opinion towards politics is really corrosive of trust in the system as a whole. And if we don't tackle that, then we you know, continue to see the huge public dissatisfaction with our politicians. We continue to see politicians being subject to attacks all the time. And if we want to address that, then we need to tackle this issue. So that's the first thing. And then second, I would say there is no silver bullet. What people are unhappy with is the culture of politics, the discourse of politics, behavior in politics. It, easy institutional fixes for this do not exist, but quite a lot of institutional changes could be made that would that would help nudge things in the right direction, or at least might help nudge things in the right direction, and we really ought to be trying. So certainly strengthening the standards system, certainly ensuring that there are regulators that are robust, that can act quickly, that can intervene and hold investigations, and make, you know, make, making sure there is a robust system there. That is very important. Certainly doing everything that you can to ensure that Parliament is functioning well and that so far as possible, people can see thoughtful debate about important political issues taking place among our parliamentarians. And then thirdly, I guess I would encourage being a bit experimental and thinking you know, how, how we've been trying to tackle these issues for several decades hasn't really shifted the dial at all. We ought to be trying something else. And for me, the most likely option that's out there, innovative option at the moment, is the more kind of deliberative democracy type of mechanism. Has worked very well in Ireland, for example, on a number of high profile issues around same-sex marriage and abortion, and has been shown on those issues to, to shift the terms of debate and to encourage, not just within the Citizens' Assembly, but also more broadly, a rather more thoughtful and careful um, approach to discussing big issues. And I think we should at least try that in the UK. And there are certainly issues where, you know, politicians hate the issues because they know they've got to do something, but whatever they do, they're going to get criticised for doing it. Those are the kinds of issues that are great for taking to citizens' assemblies. And potentially that could just, again, start to nudge yeah. the system in a more positive direction. Brilliant. On that note, let's wrap it up. But thank you so much for that. Been absolutely fascinating. And I will include links to the reports that we've that you've mentioned in the show notes so people can follow up on that. Listeners can find Alan on Twitter at Alan J Renwick or this bar chart pod this podcast at bar chart podcast or myself at, at Mark Pack. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening and look forward to seeing you next time. Mm -hmm.